Hi, everyone. My name is Anastasia Lapatina, and you're listening to This Week in Ukraine, a video podcast from the Kyiv Independent. Every week, I sit down with one of my newsroom colleagues to dive into Ukraine's most pressing issues. And this time, we're talking about Ukraine's momentous counteroffensive, the gains Ukraine has made so far, and what we can expect in the upcoming weeks and months. I'm joined by the Kyiv Independent reporter Francis Farrell, who's traveled all over the front line. Francis, welcome back. Always good to be back. So, Francis, it looks like Ukraine's much-awaited counteroffensive finally began. So my question is, why was everyone both in Ukraine and abroad waiting for this moment so much? I mean, Ukraine has had very successful counteroffensives in the past, for example, in Kherson Oblast, in Kharkiv Oblast. But so much suspense and hope wasn't in the air. So why is this time different? Yeah, so you're 100% right. This counteroffensive is, is almost defined by the words much awaited, what much anticipated. The suspense is very high. The stakes are very high. The reason for that compared to other counteroffensives that Ukraine has done before, well, Kharkiv, of course, was a surprise. Um, and it's worth remembering that was back in September last year. So that was about six, seven months into the war. And now we're almost 16 months into the war. So the war looked very different at the time. We didn't really know uh, whether Russia would still be going forward. We didn't know when we could expect Ukraine to attack. We expected Ukraine to attack Kherson. And that brings us to the Kherson counteroffensive as well, which was in a way kind of inevitable because Russia's position on the other side of the river was never really sustainable. Ukraine could always hit the bridges, even though there were some you know, pushes forward in, in October and, and earlier, eventually Russia just left the, the western bank of, of the river and left Kherson quite quickly. And, and we, we saw that coming. But since then, obviously, We've had this incredibly huge, incredibly bloody Russian push in the Donbass around Bakhmut. So Russia had the momentum for a very long time. The fighting was very fierce. But in the meantime, we knew as well that Ukraine was getting Western equipment. Ukraine was, was saving up ammunition. Ukraine was training these new brigades in NATO countries. And that was all in pre- preparation for, for this exact moment, this, this moment where Ukraine is expected to go forward and to take back its, its occupied territory, or at least a lot of it. That, that's the idea. But in the meantime, of course, Russia itself has had months and months to prepare. So you get this suspense, you get this, this months and months of, of both sides preparing for, for what is a really, really crucial battle for both sides. I remember it being sort of advertised both in the media and through the Ukrainian government as a big spring operation. It's now the middle of June and we're just starting to see some movement. So is there a reason why this counteroffensive was taking a bit too long? Well, it's hard to pinpoint the exact reasons. Uh, they haven't said them exactly, and but but we know more or less what it's likely to be. It's it's likely to be a mix of weather. People talk about the mud all the time, right? And, the rains. Yeah, and it is true because if if the ground is soggy, wet all over, then that leaves only the roads along which uh, armored vehicles can travel. That means that some armored vehicles, some the ones that have wheels and not tracks, they can't move through the fields. So it is important. And of course, then there's also the equipment itself, the, the arrival of, of these Western tanks uh, and the training that has taken you know weeks and months in Western countries. And, and it makes sense for Ukraine to be patient. I mean, 
in this offensive in many ways for Ukraine, given the situation, given the nature of this kind of fight, almost everything needs to go go right for for Ukrainian forces. And so it, it really, maybe they would have liked to attack a little bit earlier, maybe give a little, give Russia a little bit less time to prepare, but, but it doesn't make sense to, to start when, when you're not ready. And it, it's also worth remembering that they kind of needed to wait for Russia's own kind of winter spring offensive to, to fizzle out finally. Um, around Bakhmut. Around Bakhmut, yeah. I mean, they had earlier failed attacks elsewhere, like in Vuklidar, around Avdivka. But the main was the main one was was around Bakhmut, and what we see there is, and we'll talk about this later, that it stopped, and now it's Ukraine uh, advancing in that area. So you mentioned that Ukraine was waiting for all of these weapons and the training from the West. So did Ukraine get everything that it needs? Well, the question of of whether Ukraine gets what it needs is it comes back to this kind of paradoxical logic that we've discussed before on previous episodes, where whether Ukraine got enough or not, we'll see with the result, right? Um, people talk all the time about how Ukraine needs to prove that these weapons, you know, will be, will be used and, and will be used well. But we also know that the chances of success for Ukraine, again, depend almost directly on, on how much um they receive and and whether they receive it on time uh, and if we talk about time you know for me that's one of the almost the most tragic things about how how the war has gone in the last year is is that you know if ukraine had these western tanks if these western armored vehicles if ukraine had these long-range missiles which they're just starting to get now the storm shadows for example back in october when ukraine was on the attack when ukraine had all the momentum and when russia russia had just started this panicked mobilization i mean before they dug all these fortifications where could ukraine be now so ukraine has to obviously deal with with the, the politics hand, of it the, yeah with the politics the hand that they're dealt and you know even now when we already know what ukraine has available for the counteroffensive you see zelensky traveling all around europe still campaigning for more weapons because because this is going to be a, a long fight but as for whether they have what they need now only time will tell so when did the counteroffensive actually start what were kind of the early clues that we got for many weeks you know, we saw things that could be described as shaping operations. Uh, we saw Ukrainians already starting to counterattack around Bakhmut. We saw some long-range missile strikes uh, in like kind of temporary dormitories and maybe command posts, other facilities. We don't know for sure what they all were, but in southern Ukraine, you know, well behind Russian lines. We also saw the adventures across the border in, in, in Belgorod Oblast, which, you know, in many ways could be seen as, as a kind of thing to, to shake up the Russians before a counteroffensive to force them to uh, dedicate resources, dedicate more planning to, to defending their own sovereign territory. Mm -hmm. About two weeks ago, as these shaping operations seemed to be going on, you could feel the tension building that, that the real counteroffensive would start soon. And we saw this on the information front as well. We saw the Ukrainian government post a very dramatic video saying the time has come for us to liberate uh, our lands that was you know to, to try and recruit more people and then um, you know w when we got even closer we saw this video of you know it was completely silent soldiers just looking at the camera and doing that um, saying that plans love silence love silence exactly I think it's worth mentioning uh, just as a disclaimer 
nothing we say here is going to be something that the Russians don't know about. That's a very good point. The first kind of you know, definite proof that we have of, of the counteroffensive starting, you know, a, a Ukrainian advance where, you know, the front has been static for so long was on Monday last week, June the 5th. And that was when uh, Russian telegram channels reported Ukrainian attacks around the village of Novodonetska, which is between uh, Vukhledar, Velika, Novosilka, these uh, frontline towns. And they're in actually in Donetsk Oblast. When we think of the southern front line, we think of Zaporizhia Oblast, but it also includes part of uh, Donetsk Oblast as well. And so that's where these attacks occurred at first. They seemed to take this one village, but then Russian sources said that, you know, it had been won back by Russian forces. And uh, we didn't hear much for, for the next few days afterwards until, I believe, Thursday or Friday, the, the 8th of June, uh, when we saw another Ukrainian attack around Orikhiv in Zaporizhia Oblast, kind of the line where everyone was expecting Ukraine to go down. And we heard about that from Russian Telegram. Uh, we saw these videos of these, these, these photos of destroyed uh, Western armored vehicles and and, you know, we'll talk about how that went and, and the results and, and where we stand now. But, but that was when we could tell that, yeah, this something has started. Okay, so it's been around a week since the counteroffensive began. And the question that has been probably in most people's minds is like, which part of the front line is Ukraine attacking? Because there has been so much speculation whether they're going to start with Donbass or Zaporizhia or they're going to attack kind of everywhere. So do we know like what's the main axis right now? So we've seen attacks on two axes in the south um, along the southern front line. As I said, uh, one of them was was in actually the west of Donetsk Oblast uh, on that same southern front line. So these first attacks at Novodonetsk didn't seem to be successful, but then uh, in the last week or so, we've seen further advancement. We've seen uh, basically there's this town of Velika Novosilka and then south from that there's a winding river with a lot of villages along it that were basically frontline villages. And we've seen Ukrainian units liberate them one after the other. Um, I think it's been four or five villages so far. Uh, the last one was confirmed just yesterday by, by the Ukrainian military. Uh, so they seem to be advancing you know, fairly steadily around that area. Although it's worth mentioning that, and we'll talk about this later, that they haven't reached the main kind of Russian fortified line in that area. And the other attack is the one um, that I mentioned already near Orikhiv. Uh, Orikhiv is, you know, it's right south of Zaporizhia. It's a frontline town. And south from there, you reach the city of Tokmak, which is very strategic. Then you, if, if you go further, you reach the city of Melitopol, which is often considered like the, the gold prize of, of a super successful southern counteroffensive because that cuts off the main road to Crimea. That's where we've seen an attack as well uh, from some of the new brigades uh, that have been trained. But so far, there haven't been any visually confirmed uh, gains. And it's from that area that we saw the... The photos, the videos of, of, you know, destroyed, damaged Leopard tanks, Leopard breaching vehicles, Bradley infantry fighting vehicles. Of course, the Russian media sphere went crazy about them. They, sh they showed these pictures from all kinds of different angles. Um, and, you know, it looks bad because I guess it's like that's... That's what the image, the perfect image of, of right. a failed counteroffensive is, right? Like destroyed Leopards, destroyed Bradleys. But it's worth remembering that it's just a very small attack. 
Um, and, and we don't know what kind of attrition was suffered on both sides, but if that, if those are the only losses in, in equipment that Ukraine has taken, the ones that we've seen pictures of then, and it's likely not to be very more then then it's, it's probably, yeah, nothing, nothing to be worried about. Okay. So the gunshot attacks right now are mainly around Zaporizhia or moving towards Zaporizhia. Is there a reason why? What's, what's the strategic importance of that specific direction? Ever since the Kharkiv counteroffensive, ever since the Kherson counteroffensive, people expect the next move to be in this exact area. You know, strategically, it makes the most sense. You know, this is where Russia obviously had a lot of success in the very first few weeks of the war. We were all looking at Kiev and Kharkiv, but but they swept through the south very quickly, and they created this so-called land bridge from from Crimea mm -hmm. all the way to occupied Donbas and and into Russia. People people debate about how important this land bridge is. I think it's quite objectively, uh, you know, clear that if Ukraine can succeed in in making this breakthrough in the south and driving through all the way to the sea potentially, or even all the way to the entrance to to Crimea itself, then that's very bad news for Russia, and and that's the kind of big strategic development that Ukraine needs to march forward basically towards liberating all of the occupied territories and and specifically with regards to crimea that means they can cut off the land supply but also potentially uh, target the bridge the crimean bridge and and completely isolate the russia's presence in in the peninsula so you know it would be it would be a game changer if if it succeeded compared to attacking in Luhansk Oblast or in Donetsk Oblast, where you could just take it back a little bit of territory that has been fought over brutally for months and months. And before that for years. And before that for nine years, exactly. The other thing we're seeing, the other area in which Ukraine is attacking, and with some success actually, is back around Bakhmut, uh, which is again the site of f fighting for, for many, many months, where for many months Russia was the one going forward. Mm -hmm. These counterattacks actually started back in May, um, back in early May, around the time when the big conflict between the Wagner head Prigozhin and, and the Russian defense ministry started heating up. And yeah, th those, those attacks are, are still just local counterattacks. You know, they're still just the brigades that are in that that have been in place uh, moving forward. Again, it, it's important because if Russia lost Bakhmut now, after so many months, that would be a huge embarrassment for them. It would be a success for Ukraine as well. And and they're going to have to potentially, again, transfer transfer resources to, to defend that area. I imagine domestically, that would be a huge blow for the Russian society. Yeah, I mean, for, for six months already, I mean, ever since Kherson, like that was like, this was the, the city, one pride, the, yeah. the, the one thing that we could, you know, celebrate uh, yeah. for, for taking that. And if, if they lose it within a month, then it looks pretty bad. So how much do we know about the gains and the losses of these counterattacks so far? Uh, so the main gains that Ukraine has uh, achieved in, in these attacks so far has been just south of Velikos Novosilko, which I mentioned earlier. So uh, as far as they, uh, the official information goes, Ukraine has liberated six villages uh, in this area. They're all very small, they're all one, one after another. And of course, this is before Ukrainian forces have actually uh, reached the, the main Russian defensive line. So uh, as for the attack around Orykhiv, we haven't had any visual confirmation of Ukrainian gains there and around Bakhmut they've they've moved forward in the last week uh, 
I think several one, kilometers. Yeah, one and a half kilometers on the northern flank and three and a half kilometers on the southern flank uh, of Bakhmut. And again, that's where they've been moving forward for for a month already. But those gains were just in the last week. Um, as for the losses, obviously it's impossible to tell so far. No one is talking about this. Uh, the Russian defense ministry said that obviously they want to paint a picture of a, a, a complete horrible failure so far. So they've they've talked about. Uh, seven and a half thousand uh, Ukrainian losses just in the counteroffensive alone attacking. It's close to impossible in a week. Pretty much, um, pretty much. And, they've also and, said that they've repelled the entire counteroffensive, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. So, so that's that's nothing, nothing to go on. And I mean, in theory, that could be the case, but we just haven't seen fighting in you know at that level of intensity uh we haven't seen ukraine commit that level of forces yet uh for anything like that to happen um and and some ukrainian soldiers from the the attack which seemed to be a failure around arikhiv they actually uh came out and said that the the media has overblown completely you know how how bad this was what units is ukraine using in these operations so that's a really interesting question because everyone has uh, has been waiting for Ukraine to start using these new brigades. Uh, these are brigades that have been nine brigades that have been kept in reserve that have been many of the soldiers there have been trained in NATO countries. And then uh, many of these units have been equipped with with top quality Western equipment. You've got your Leopards, your Challengers, your Bradleys, uh, these French weird light tanks on wheels that no one knows what to call. So everyone's expecting them to to show up. And then there are also these uh, a special offensive guard brigades uh, that have been trained under the National Guard, under the Interior Ministry. Uh, people are expecting them to play a role, but we haven't actually seen many of them yet. We know the attack around Arikiv was done by the 47th Mechanized Brigade, and we know we've seen the 37th Marine Brigade uh, also in action, but that's just two out of the nine, and we haven't seen even and their whole brigade really taking part in the fight. Um, interestingly, the area around Velikonovosilka, where Ukraine has moved forward the most, there we see that these offensives have actually been carried out by the brigades that have been there on the front for a long time now, for months. Uh, the, the 68th Jäger Brigade, the 35th Marine Brigade. So it's, it's interesting. Ukraine definitely hasn't committed uh, anything close to their whole force here. Uh, that have been that was dedicated for for the offensive and and instead they're they're using a lot of the units that were already there. Um, I think my theory is that in in Velika Novosilka the logic of that is that the fighting up until the, that main defensive line is expected to be a bit easier and you know they want to use these brigades that have been there for a long time. They know the area um, and then when they reach that line maybe that's when they'll send in these new brigades. So what's Ukraine's overall strategy here? Because they're currently attacking from several directions. So should we be expecting another push somewhere else or? I mean, it makes sense to attack in several places at once. You want to see where the defense is weakest. Uh, you want to probe around for, for an area where you can exploit later and you want to just uh, spread the defending forces thin. You want to keep them on their toes. And, and so that's what we see now. It's, it's completely understandable. We could expect this to happen and we could expect that not all of these angles would immediately result in an amazing success. Um, there could still be new attacks opened up in new areas, but again, I, I don't know. Um, I'm not clued in on 
on on the deep plan of of the counteroffensive, and I think everyone agrees that's a good thing. So there's been a lot of talk about Russia's defensive lines, and they've basically built them extensively all along the front line. Of course, they sound like a huge problem for Ukraine. So can you talk about those fortifications a little bit, and what can Ukraine do to overcome them? Yeah, so we've been watching Russia dig in uh, all across the front line. The first fortifications they started building in a more defensive posture was all the way back in autumn uh, when it looked like Ukraine could push through into Luhansk Oblast. And then obviously through winter and spring, we've seen Russia construct more and more fortifications, especially in this southern front line, Zaporizhia, Donetsk Oblast, where a successful Ukrainian offensive could have uh, the most devastating effect uh, for Russia's hopes in this war. And so what they've been doing is they've been, you know, constructing very methodically several lines of defenses. These include, you know, one after another minefields, obviously anti-tank mines, anti-personnel mines. Mm -hmm. Um, Then you have uh, anti-vehicle ditches, like basically huge, deep, uh, wide trenches where even a tank can can get stuck trying to get across. Uh, we have the famous dragon teeth, which you know have been ridiculed a bit, but you know they they can also be a serious obstacle for vehicles if they're especially if they're put in the ground properly. And then you have trenches, of course, just normal trenches where infantry armed with small arms and anti-tank weapons will be also waiting for for such an offensive. In many places, especially around the Rykiv and Tokmak, you know there are several of these lines one after the other, and it's clear that the strategy here is to cause maximum losses to an attacking force, that's obvious, but also to prevent one kind of tactical breakthrough from turning into a strategic breakthrough. So if Ukraine breaks through one of these crazy fortified lines in this area, then they've got another one and it's manned by more infantry. So yeah, getting through these, you know, it it was always going to be a real, really, really hard task. Everybody knows that defending is much easier than attacking and kind of the ratio of uh, attackers versus defenders is around three to one, five to one, depending on who you ask. So this promises to be a bloody battle. Yeah, for sure. And and Ukraine Ukraine knows this. You know, one thing I always say about this counteroffensive is that you know one thing we can be sure of is that unlike Russia, Ukraine has a strong the Ukrainian command, the decisions made at the top have a strong connection to reality. So they wouldn't go for this if if they they knew they had very, very little chance, uh, unlike uh, Russia, where, you know, Putin just demands the impossible from from his generals. So, yeah, the, these these defenses will be a, a huge challenge. Uh, Ukraine has been given some of the equipment needed to clear them. So you've got these mine clearing, uh, basically, weapons, which, which shoot out a, a basically a a rope, a really Mm -hmm. long rope with explosives, which blow through the minefield and they clear this kind of corridor for for vehicles and infantry to go through. So they have some Soviet ones, they have some new ones they've been given. They've been given some of the breaching vehicles, you know, like the special Finnish, uh, I think they got them from Finland, these Leopard R vehicles, which, which are designed to to move forward through a minefield as well and breach some of these defenses. But the tricky thing here, you know, it's one thing to to kind of cut a path through defenses like this, but they know that they have to do that while under heavy artillery fire. You know, when we see these attacks, Russia will spot them and Russia will target them with artillery. So that's that's the real, real challenge here. And for the future, um, as all of this is unfolding, what should we keep in mind or look for as we follow these updates. 
So after a week or so, we're just still in a very early stage of the counteroffensive. And there are two key things that we haven't really seen yet. Uh, that when we do see, we'll know that's, we know that's crunch time. We know that's when kind of the decisive battle seems to be beginning. And that is, first of all, when Ukraine reaches and starts to attack uh, these, you know, defensive lines, and we can really see what that looks like. And more importantly, crunch time will come when Ukraine, when we see evidence that Ukraine has committed, you know, close to the majority of this reserve force, these new brigades, these new assault brigades that they've been training and preparing for this exact moment. Um, so far, they haven't committed many of these units at all. Um, so... You know, not, nothing crazy has happened yet, basically. But when we see that commitment, and it will be obvious pretty quickly, then then that's when we can start really drawing conclusions about how this counteroffensive is going. What is Ukraine's stated goal here? Like, what kind of result is going to be deemed a success? Well, they don't have a stated goal, I guess. But I, I think I think it, it's obvious that you know what the best case scenario we see arrows you know carving across maps the best case scenario here would be a, a very large strategic breakthrough especially if it's in the south then you know a strategic breakthrough that changes the game for the whole war you know we talk about this scenario with Crimea with cutting off the land bridge you know for me that would really be a kind of scenario where it's now obvious that Ukraine's going to win this war completely that they're on the path to liberating all the occupied territory and Russia's whole special operation plan is, is falling apart. That's if Ukraine reaches Crimea. That That's kind of the best case scenario. But I think it's also worth saying that there is, there is scope for success even without that kind of uh, breakthrough, um, the expert Michael Kaufman, who's a good friend of the Kiev Independent, he, he was on another podcast recently and he used a good phrase. It was like a proof of concept, basically a proof of concept to the Western world, especially those who help Ukraine, those who send weapons uh, to show them that with these weapons, with NATO training, Ukraine can successfully attack uh, these fortified Russian lines and take back territory. So if we have a significant breakthrough anywhere on the front, really, it could be in Luhansk, it could be near Donetsk, near Bakhmut even, but hopefully a big one in the south, then that's already, you know, a proof of concept because going forward in the war, that means that Ukraine can say, okay, you keep up this same support, you know, maybe more long range missiles as well, fighter jets, we can start talking about those. And we can keep doing this, we can keep uh, moving forward and taking back territory. And the Ukrainian government also said, I think a few weeks ago that people shouldn't treat this counteroffensive as the final one, because if Ukraine doesn't achieve its goals, if Ukraine doesn't, because the ultimate goal in the war, of course, is to liberate the entire territory, go back to the border of 1991, which includes occupied Donbass and occupied Crimea. So what they were saying is that if that doesn't happen in this counteroffensive, they will prepare for another one and they are preparing possibly for another one. So there could be several big counteroffensives here. Yeah, there could be, of course. And we know that Ukraine still hasn't received, for example, the American tanks, the Abrams. Uh, there's a lot of talk about new attack MS, uh, long range missiles, finally, uh, finally getting the green light soon. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be tougher and tougher. It's, you know, if, if, if the counteroffensive doesn't go well this time, then you know, Ukraine will have to find a way to create conditions where they have better chances in the future because, and it's hard to say exactly how they can do that, 
Uh, it depends a lot on the state of the Russian military. It depends on what kind of losses they take. It depends on whether they do another round of mobilization. But, you know, in theory, they'll have more time to dig in, to prepare themselves for another defense. Uh, so, you know, I, I wouldn't be too dramatic about it. Some people say, yeah, this is the last chance. But it's also, on the other hand, not so easy to say, oh, if this one doesn't work, we'll, we'll try again and we'll try again. It, it's not that simple. We're now going to be answering some questions that we got from our community members. The Coom Independent finally launched its very own membership system. It operates on our website, so it's really easy to support us now without intermediaries like Patreon. Just go to coomindependent.com and support us for as little as $5 a month. You still retain all the same perks. Um, you get access to exclusive events like discussions with editors and more. And also you get a chance to ask us questions before every single episode. So the first question that we got was, in planning and evaluating the counteroffensive, just how much can Russian stupidity, low morale and infighting be factored in? If I was the Ukrainian command, I would not be factoring these things in. Why? Underestimating your enemy is is always a big mistake. Fair. And, you know, I think that the whole thank God they're so stupid meme uh, was very relevant in the first year of the war. But when it comes to something like this, something so high stakes and, and where, you know, Ukraine is taking a lot more risk than it ever has almost in, in this whole war. I spoke to Rob Lee, uh, another expert for a piece that came out yesterday on our website and you know he actually said that it seems that like the russians have been defending pretty competently so far it would be a mistake to put too many hopes on uh, on russian incompetence at this point another question that we got is actually really interesting i've seen a lot of people discussing this online would ukraine consider sending troops across the russian border and back into ukraine to bypass the defensive lines and encircle a Russian grouping, such as around Bakhmut, for example. They perhaps could use only their Soviet gear to not anger the West, because as we know, the West doesn't like us attacking Russian territory. It's a long way around. To go all the way around the current front line, you'd have to go through Kharkiv Oblast, through Belgorod, and travel a long way around uh, through hostile territory without any logistics. There's a question of, is this going to be just a raid, like going going through without trying to take territory or not? Uh, yeah, I don't really see this as, as a possibility at the moment. I mean, I think if the time came that, you know, this made a lot of sense, I, I don't think Ukraine would worry too much about the political implications of, of such a border crossing, but, but it, it just doesn't make sense militarily at this point. So the third question that we got was, uh, the supporter is wondering, some days it seems that only Budanov and this person are being quiet because there's a lot of media frenzy, a lot of talk of great expectations. How can Ukraine both leverage this and communicate to the world that just like on D-Day and until the final victory, it's still a lot of hard work and a lot of tragic losses and that the civilized world must stay the course and not burn out. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question um, because especially when, you know, the real crunch time, as we said, of the counteroffensive starts, we see potentially more, more photos, which look pretty bad with destroyed Western tanks and so on. This information space and the world's reaction in that information space is is critical in many ways. Um, I think at the moment, you know, 
the the western leaders who help ukraine a lot they they've said that you know they're they're with ukraine till the end you know whether this military operation this counteroffensive is a success or not you know should not in any way change the political reality uh, of this war and hopefully it, it it won't change the the west's kind of resolution to to support ukraine until victory they've always said it's up to ukraine you know when they want to sit down and negotiate but if they if they want to fight until they liberate all the occupied territories then they have have that right so uh expectation management is a really interesting kind of aspect of of this period of the war that we're in now i think ukraine in in many ways has has more or less played it right they've they've hyped it up a little bit but they've also said that no this is going to be a long war and we need to be ready for what comes afterwards um and yeah i think with this crop of of leaders in the west uh, i'm not too worried about what that will what that will be like but it's tough and it's worth remembering for i guess all our readers everyone watching this counteroffensive that you know things might not go the way you wanted to and that's fine and, and it's going to be tragic but that's also something that can happen yeah and you need to kind of mentally mentally prepare for that yeah that aspect as well well francis thank you so much for being here as always it was very interesting to listen to you thank you see you next time also this week a russian missile attack on the city of krivirih injured 36 and killed 11 people the local government reported on june 13th after Russia blew up the Kakhovka Dam in Kherson Oblast, the government also reported finding dislodged mines, as well as pollutants like E. coli and cholera, in the waters near Kherson and Odessa Oblast. And Russian forces supposedly mined large numbers of hydraulic structures in Zaporizhia and Kherson Oblast, Ukraine's defense ministry said on June 13th. You can find our show on YouTube and all audio platforms every Friday morning. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to us and like our content wherever you're listening to this podcast. Donate to become a member of our community just by going to our website, coindependent.com, and follow us on social media at Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Also, check out our new project, Ukraine's True History, which is a series of videos on YouTube and articles which debunk Russian propaganda and myths surrounding Ukrainian history. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening.